You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Despite its prevalence in our society, poll after poll shows that public ignorance and misconceptions about eczema remain, having a detrimental impact on the 1 in 5 children and 1 in 12 adults who live with it. To help dispel the myths surrounding a condition that has seen a threefold increase over the past 20 years, I recruited the aid of GP and medical writer Dr Rob Hicks. Eczema is not contagious, it's not because of poor hygiene, it's a chronic condition of the skin where the skin becomes very, very dry, people suffer itchiness so they scratch that puts tears into the skin the skin breaks sometimes that introduces some infection so it becomes very red very sore very itchy very tender the key treatment with eczema is to keep the skin well moisturized and that needs to be done regularly throughout the day i understand that eczema is quite an individual condition so there isn't one treatment that fits all often when we diagnose eczema for the first time it takes a number of different creams to be tried before somebody finds the one that actually works for them so they mustn't become despondent they mustn't become too negative about this we should look very optimistically at it and says collect chambers from the National Eczema Society, even at a time of social distancing, there is support across the UK to help people with eczema feel less isolated. We run regional support groups throughout the UK and it's a great opportunity for people whose lives are affected by eczema to meet other people in similar or the same situation. This can be very helpful from a psychological perspective that they don't feel alone with this skin condition and that there are other people coping with everyday life with eczema. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. New research indicates that there are as many as 6 million people across the UK who have a fear of needles. Of the 81% polled in a recent study who don't donate blood, 30% stated they avoid doing so because of this fear of needles. 15% said that they'd even risk their health by travelling unprotected to destinations that require us to be vaccinated because of the severity of their jab jitters. Dr Carol Cooper is a GP and a national newspaper medical writer. Carol, this isn't just a case of people being a bit squeamish, is it? Needle phobia can be because people are afraid of the pain from the needle, but it can also be a completely involuntary bodily reaction. People don't know that they're afraid of the needle, and as soon as they have a jab or a vaccination, they keel over. Adult men are particularly prone to do this. Do we know what causes the majority of cases? It's likely to have different causes in different people. For some people, perhaps the older generation, they may have had a particularly unpleasant experience with a needle in the olden days when needles weren't quite so well made as they are now. For young children, they're just afraid because it's fear of the unknown. 80% of needle phobics actually have other needle phobics in their family. So whether it's because parents' attitudes rub off on the children or because it's possibly a genetic element, nobody's really quite sure. So what steps can we take to overcome our fear of needles? The best thing to do with needle phobia is not to tell the person to pull their socks up and grit their teeth and just get on with it because actually that doesn't help at all. I think it's essential to really prepare a needle phobia person well before their procedure to explain what's going to happen to be calm and to take time and then when it comes to the procedure itself to get them to lie down if there's any likelihood of fainting because actually you can't faint lying down. For a small child they might want to take a teddy, a soft toy, you might want to help them look at something on an opposite wall that's of interest or counting with them, telling them nursery rhymes, even singing to them. All those things can really help and there's also local anaesthetic creams that help numb the pain and and those can be bought in advance over the counter from pharmacies. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington.
More than 3 million people across the UK are either malnourished or at risk of becoming malnourished, with an estimated 1 million over the age of 65. According to the Malnutrition Task Force, thanks to COVID-19, this silent and often hidden problem, which in most cases is preventable, looks set to increase. Defined as a deficiency of energy, protein and other nutrients that cause adverse effects on the body, the way it functions and clinical outcomes, most malnutrition in the UK is disease-related. Around one in every five people who are infected with COVID-19 develops difficulty with breathing and requires hospital care and may need additional nutritional support as they recover at home. There are also an unquantifiable number of people living in the community who've had moderate symptoms of COVID-19 but didn't require hospital that may also require help. Anecdotal evidence from the Long COVID support group suggests that a great many people who've had moderate to severe COVID-19 are unsure of the nutritional pathway they should follow to assist with their recovery. Dr Anne Holdaway is chair of the Managing Adult Malnutrition in the Community Team and co-author of Nutritional Patient Support Information for People Living With or Recovering From COVID-19. What we thought at first was it was going to be a bit like flu and people would come into hospital if they had respiratory problems like, for example, pneumonia that we ordinarily see in some people with flu during the winter months but in fact COVID-19 has proven to be very difficult to manage in the moderately and severe cases that we've seen. And there are no specific foods or vitamins or mineral supplements that will prevent you from catching COVID-19 and good hygiene practice, hand washing, masking up and keeping your distance remains the best means of avoiding infection. However, eating a balanced diet can help support the normal functioning of the immune system to help fight off infection. That's totally right, Paul. So for anybody out there who's got a good appetite and isn't currently infected by the condition, it's the eating well messages that still apply to those individuals. And for those with, say, type 2 diabetes, for example, we're encouraging those people to actually control their diabetes well and hopefully avoid undesirable weight gain if your appetite's good because we know that keeping active and eating a balanced diet is important for the prevention of the disease. But those messages begin to change for some of our vulnerable members of the population, including those 3 million people who are either malnourished or at risk of malnutrition. And they're particularly prone to an infection from COVID-19 and that likely to be more severe. You mentioned that the messages change. Talk us through the specifics. So for people who are at risk of malnutrition, so where appetite's poor, where they're perhaps being shielded at home because they've got other conditions that affect their health and they're being told to isolate or shield, that may mean that they have even less access to good food or less access to some of the help that they would ordinarily get, say, from social support and social care and social services. So these members of the population are quite vulnerable. They may need help with their shopping and accessing food or the provision of meals to achieve a balanced diet. But we also know in many people with chronic diseases, so respiratory diseases, with cancer, with motor neurone disease, for example, all those conditions can impact on a person's ability to eat and drink normally. And that means that they're at risk of malnutrition and that may compromise their immune system and put them more at risk of a severe infection of COVID-19. Just to be clear, when we say a balanced, healthy diet, what do we mean? So for you and I, Paul, if our appetite's good, then we should be looking at eating that sort of five portions of fruit and vegetables a day with carbohydrates, so starchy foods, high in fibre at each mealtime, and also with a protein source at each mealtime as well. So the protein-rich foods are meat, fish, eggs 
chicken and uh, beans, pulses and nuts for those vegetarians and vegans. So that would normally comprise a balanced diet with, say, three meals t- taken over the day, not excess in portion size, because it's often the portion sizes that make us gain weight undesirably. And that should be combined with regular activity, which we know has been a challenge for some of us during COVID-19. What about hydration? Hydration's really important. So yes, all fluids count, excepting alcohol. So whether it's tea, coffee, water, squash, or milk, for example, those all count as fluids. We normally refer to taking eight cups a day, but a, a good indicator of of hydration is the colour of your urine. It should be in a plentiful supply passed several times throughout the day and a light straw colour. Can vitamin supplements be helpful? Well, if you're eating a varied diet, then that often will supply your vitamin and mineral requirements. But if you, say, had any food aversions or if you've been unwell and are off your food and maybe avoiding specific food groups, then you might benefit from a multivitamin and mineral supplement. For some patients who have a really poor appetite, they find that because of some of the symptoms associated with COVID-19 and their weakness and fatigue and not being able to consume sufficient food to meet their requirements, then we do consider additional nutritional support. And what we mean by that is, is we often prescribe or recommend nourishing drinks that contain a mixture of nutrients to help boost the intake. And this is very true for patients who are perhaps in care homes or patients coming out of hospital where their appetite may continue to be poor for several weeks after the infection. From talking with a long COVID support group and from what we gleaned from a poll we did with people recovering from COVID-19, there has been a lack of authoritative advice on the role of nutrition and exercise in recovery. That's something that you and your colleagues from the British Dietetic Association, the Royal College of Nursing and the British Association for Parental and Enteral Nutrition have addressed in the development of a range of free patient information leaflets. These will all be available through the Word on Health website. Talk us through them. So if you've had COVID-19 and your appetite's good and you've not been losing weight unintentionally, then the green leaflet is designed for you. But if you've had, say, COVID-19 and you've lost a lot of weight unintentionally, and we are seeing this in many of our patients leaving hospitals, but there's also many at home who we actually don't know about. But if you've lost weight unintentionally, quite quickly, are feeling quite weak, you've noticed your muscles have reduced in size and you've got this ongoing fatigue, then it might be important to start looking at the protein in your diet and looking at combining that with some resistance exercises to actually try and help you regain your strength after an episode of COVID-19 illness. And then the red leaflet is really designed for those who've had a severe illness where we know they've experienced lots of issues that might have impaired their dietary intake, their ability to eat and drink and enjoy food. They may have things like dry mouth from oxygen therapy. They may have breathlessness that's ongoing and they may have weakness and fatigue that is not only as a result of the infection itself but maybe as a result of the muscle that they've lost during severe infection. And for those, we'd recommend the red leaflet that talks about the importance of taking, in some cases, high-calorie foods, but specifically high-protein foods. And it also provides hints and tips on managing some of the dietary issues that patients with COVID-19 illness have experienced. To access these free leaflets, log on to the Word on Health website, www.wordonhealth.com. That's www.wordonhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health.
On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health. 